0: Chapter Two of the Gentle Art of Faking by Ricardo Nobili. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jordan Watts, Oxfordshire. Chapter Two: Collectomania in Rome. Collectomania develops. Rampant parvenuism in Rome. Extravagant prices paid for art and curio. Faking arrives. Good and foolish collectors, as seen by writers and satirists of the time. Art Dealing The Septi, Shops, and Auction Rooms Such was the earliest type of the real collector of art in Rome, a first phase in a city where the passion for art was, generally speaking, rarely genuine. This phase led first to the acquisition of what might be styled something between ambition and love of display. Then the trade in objects of art eventually appeared, and as a logical consequence, imitation and fraudulent art finally had their scope. Fictitious masterpieces of painting and sculpture often signed as in modern times with the forged names of noted artists were already on the market before cicero's time odi falsus inscriptiones statuarum alienarum i hate the forged inscriptions on statues not one's own remarks cicero who although somewhat of a collector himself never missed a chance to ridicule the pretentious amateur lost in hysterical ecstasy before imitation supposed to be original works or of fanning the art lovers pseudo enthusiasm for the works of polyclitus which was extremely fashionable at one time among art collectors thus forgery received a great impulse when art reached its climax in rome and multiplied the number of collectors dragging after it in its triumphal march wealth and all the fickle forces of wealth taste in art then became apparently more exclusive or rather according to quintilian more unstable in its standards nowadays says the latin rhetorician and critic they prefer the childish monochrome works of Polyclitus and a glyphon to the more expressive and more recent artists yet very likely not understanding this not unusual love for the archaic and the odd so common in collectors of all ages quintilian cannot explain the preference for work he considers gross except by fashion or what we should call today a snobbish sentiment criticizing the art in vogue he adds in fact i should call this art childish compared to that of most illustrious artists who came afterwards but in my judgment it is of course only pretension book twelve chapter ten it is evident that with the romans as with us the times are not entirely dissimilar indeed but for art critics the new modern fad they might be called identical prices paid for works of art or simple curiosities became freakish and fabulous going up or down in a single period according to fickle fashion the momentary passion for morrins, for instance tempted a collector to pay for one of these cups of fluorspar a sum approximating fourteen thousand two hundred pounds another mania succeeded that of tables made of citrus, a species of rare wood, possibly Thuja, grown on the slopes of Mount Athos. Cathagus invested in one of these fashionable tables a sum equivalent to £12,000. Then at another time wrought silver became the rage, and prices for this article soon reached absurd figures. When Chrysogon, Sulla's wealthy freedman, was bidding at an auction for a silver autepsa, a plate-warmer, people standing outside the auction imagined he was buying a farm from the high sum he offered. As might be expected, high prices tempted brainless parvenus. There were many in Rome, like that demesippus of whom Horace said, Insanit veteris statuas demisippus emendo. Satires, Chapter 3 the type of snobbish visionary and sham art-seeker who bought roughly carved statues, supplying their defects with his fancy, and who, in speaking of his historical pieces, stated that to be admitted into his very choicest collection, a basin must at least have served Sisyphus, son of Aeolus, as a footbath. Next to this foolish type of collector of art, Rome possessed a great many other characters who, like those of to-day, might be classified as odd specimens of art-lovers. "'Isn't Euctus a bore with his historical silver?' asks Marshall, adding that he would rather eat off the common earthenware of Saguntus than hear all the gabble concerning Euctus's table-silver. Think of it! His cups belonged to Laomedon, King of Troy. And mind, to obtain these rarities, Apollo played upon his lyre, and destroyed the wall of the city by inducing the stones to follow him by his music. But concerning this odd type of collector, Marshall merits quotation. "'Now, what do you think of this vase?' asks Euctus of his table companions. "'Well, it belonged to old Nestor himself. Do you see that part all worn away, there where the Dove is? It was reduced to that state by the hand of the King of Pylos. Then, showing one of those mixing bowls that Latins called Crater, this was the cause of the battle between the ferocious Rucus and the Lapithy. Naturally, every cup has its particular history. This is the very cup used by the sons of Iacus when offering most generous wine to their friend. That is the cup from which Dido drank to the health of Bithius when she offered him that supper in Phrygia. Finally, when he has bored his guests to death, Euctus offers them, in the cup from which Pyramus used to drink, wine as young as a Styanax. Trimalco is so well known that we are dispensed from a detailed illustration. Petronius must have drawn from life this capital character of his satyricon. Like Euctus, Trimalco extols the historic merits of his Articles of Virtue. He has the same mania for inviting people to his table and forcing them to admire his rarities. He talks very much in the same manner as the type quoted by Marshall thus he informs his guests that his corinthian vases are the best and most genuine in existence because they were made at his order by a workman named corinth as a side explanation of this remark fearing that the guest might suppose he did not know the historic origin of the metal he adds yes yes i know all about it don't take me for an ignoramus i know the origin of this metal perfectly well it was at the capture of Troy, when Hannibal, a shrewd brigand, by the way, threw on to a burning pyre all the statues of gold and silver and bronze. The mixture of the metals produced the alloy from which the goldsmiths have made plates, vases, and figures. From this, of course, comes the name of Corinth, to designate this mix-up of three metals. Which, of course, is no more any of the three. Trimalco also possesses a cup with a bas-relief representing Cassandra cutting her children's throats Not content with this gorgeous historical blunder and forgetting that he is talking of the bas-relief of a cup Trimalco adds as an artistic comment that the bodies of Cassandra's children are so lifelike that one might suspect they had been cast from nature Continuing our comparison with Euctus, we may add that Trimalco also possesses a rare picture, with a bas-relief representing Daedalus putting Niobe inside the wooden horse of Troy. When he has finished maiming history, and the guests have patiently listened to his fantastic tales like a true parvenu, Trimalco never fails to add, Mind, it is all massive precious metal. It is all my very own, as you see, and not to be sold at any price. Except for the wording of trifling difference, the word expensive would play a conspicuous part with the Trimalco of today, decorated, be it understood, with precious, rare, unique, and all the rest of the arch-superlatives of modern idioms. Such collectors have not been lost to our day but there are other types worth quoting. They will certainly help us to understand the part played by art imitations and forgery among the Romans, and how the existence of fraud was in some way justified, that in the end the one chiefly responsible for the existence of faking was the collector himself. This understanding will be greatly aided by a glimpse at the septi, antiquity, or simple bric-a-brac shops, that were grouped together in certain streets of ancient Rome, like they are nowadays. Like today, too, sales of art were effected by auctions, or by private dealing, the latter in shops, or through the usual go-between, the so-called courtier of our time. Public auctions were announced by placards, or a simple writing on the walls an idea of what these announcements were like is given by the following one from Plautus's Minoichmere within 7 days in the morning sale of Minoichmere there will be sold slaves furniture houses farms every article bought must be paid for at the time of buying as in our days an exhibition of the goods preceded the auction these shows were held in appropriate rooms adorned with porticoes called atria auctionaria in speaking of such exhibitions and commenting upon some special one cicero remarks auctionis vero miserabilis adspectus second philippic section 29 Curiously enough, the auction sales of the herbs were provided with an employee, whose function seems to have survived in the public sales of Paris. The Latin praico is something like the French cuir, whose office it is at public auctions to extol and praise the objects offered for sale. It must be said that the praico, however, was not only a simple cuir, but at times a sort of director of the sale, thus combining the functions of commissaire priseur, expert, and crier. But it was certainly in the latter function that his ability best contributed to the success of the sale. Some of these employees must have enriched themselves like regular commissaire priseur. Horace, Epistles, Book One, Section Seven describes one of these Cuières as indulging in luxury, making money easily and scattering it like water, allowing himself every kind of pleasure, and yielding tremendously to fashion. A curious description, suggesting that this Voltaeus Menas of Horace must have had the lucky career of some of the Parisian auction employees, and cannot have been indifferent to that form of gay self-indulgence that parisians call faire la bombe. Speaking of auctions, and the way Romans disposed of their goods to the highest bidder, it is worth while to refer to what Suetonius tells us happened at the sale held by Caligula, who being short of money thought fit one day to put up to auction everything in the royal palace that was either useless or considered out of fashion. Quidquid quid instrumenti veteris aulae erat." According to Suetonius, not only was the Emperor himself present at the auction, but he put prices on the various objects, bidding on them as well. An old praetor, Aponius Saturninus, became sleepy during the sale, and in dozing kept on nodding his head. Caligula noticed it, and told the auctioneer not to lose sight of that buyer, and to put up the price each time Saturninus nodded. When the old man finally awoke he realised that without knowing it, he had bought at the imperial auction about eighty thousand pounds worth of goods. Caligula, Section 39 Pliny relates an amusing story, which shows that then, as now, the auctioneer was allowed to group objects. At a sale, he says. Theonius, the Queer made a single lot of a fine bronze candelabra, and a slave named Clesippus, humpbacked and extremely ugly. The courtesan Gagania bought the lot for 50,000 sestuses, about 400 pounds. The same night at supper she showed her acquisitions, exhibiting the naked slave to the jibes of the guests, then yielding to a freakish passion, made of him her lover and heir. Clesippus thus became extremely wealthy and worshipped the candelabra with a devotion as though it were his God. Book 34, Section 6 As stated above, other sales generally took place in various parts of Rome where antiquaries and bric-a-brac dealers had assembled their shops, a great many of these merchants had gathered in the Via Sancta, or the sceptre of the Via Publica, or the Septa Iulia. Those parts of Roman streets called Septi, where antiquaries and bric-a-brac dealers had their dens, were the amateur fool's paradise and trap and very likely they were as inviting and picturesque as similar places in modern European towns today. These shops and shows, it is said, offered real rarities at times, such as bronzes of Aegina by Myron, Delos bronzes by Polyclitus, genuine rarities in Corinthian bronze, marvels in chiselling signed by Boethus or Miss, the septi not only exhibited artistic pieces but also sham rarities that had won public appreciation in a moment of fashion among these was a certain kind of candelabra shaped like a tree with one or more branches concerning these candelabras which were almost made to supplant the more artistic ones by a fad pliny remarks arborum mala Ferentium Modo Locentes, like trees bearing shining apples, and states with caustic humour that although their name bore a common etymology with the word candela, candle, a cheap means of lighting, they were sold at prices equivalent to the yearly appointment of a military tribune. Pliny, Book 34, Chapter 8. Speaking of candelabras, it may be stated that the finest ever seen in Rome belonged to Verres, being part of the vast plunder of Sicily he accumulated when stationed there by Rome as proconsul. This fact prompted the sarcastic remark in Cicero's indictment of the proconsul, that Verres had in his triclinium a candelabra casting light where darkness would have been more appropriate, this rich candelabra must have been of a statuesque size, the kind Lucretius describes Sinon aureus and euinum simulacra per aides, lampadas igniferas manibus retinentia dextris. Book Two, Chapter Twenty Four: Figures of Youths Holding Lighted Lamps in Their Right Hands Naturally, it was not only a single speciality valued through fashion or fad, that was to be found on the market. It was a regular emporium of antiquities in art, and of all kinds of bric-a-brac. Beside murrins, tables of citrus, and other specialties, there were paintings of all schools and sizes, down to miniatures, an art not unknown to the Romans. There were also sculpture, ceramics, fine pieces of Regium and Cumi, Maltese tapestries, oriental embroideries, etc. In fact, mixed with a good deal that was dubious, these places also offered fine treasures, as Marshall says. Hic Ubi Roma Suas Aurea Wexit Opes. Here where Golden Rome brought her treasure it is easy to understand that the people moving in this milieu were not dissimilar from those who indulge in articles of virtue in our enlightened times, or who are somewhat of a victim to the collector passion. Such a milieu, not to be found in Athens, where the passion for art was genuine and essential, was quite consistent in Rome, where improvised croesuses and rich parvenues abounded, parvenus who like many of the collectors of our time took to buying objects of art as a fad or hobby this type of collector is easily recognized and in its grotesqueness is not essentially different from some of our modern society it is true that rome also produced many genuine lovers of art many first-rate connoisseurs and collectors such as agrippa Magnificent collectors of the caliber of Caesar, keen, intelligent lovers of art, as greedy as unscrupulous, such as Sulla, Vérez, and Mark Antony. But, as in America today, the magnitude of quickly made fortunes, the impetus of a passion suddenly aroused without any previous preparation, produced only a few types of the true collector. As in America now, for one Quincy Shaw... HOW MANY a TRIMALCO AND EUCTUS?" Needless to say, the art market generally follows the inclination of the client. It tries to meet his taste, whims, and fads. It may be scrupulous or unscrupulous, according to circumstances, and, particularly in art and antiques, these circumstances chiefly depend on the great despotic ruler of all markets, the client thus in the septi side by side with firminius clodius and gratianus dealers enjoying an undisputed reputation in the sigillaria image market and other quarters where antiquary shops were gathered there were to be noted types like the milonius of whom marshall says rare stuffs chiselled silver cloaks togas precious stones there is nothing you don't sell milo and your clients invariably carry their acquisitions away with them after all your wife is the best article in your emporium always bought and never taken away from your shop books 7 to 12 section 102 the whole gamut of oddities with which the collecting mania abounds were really to be found in the Septi. There was the particular collector who has no eyes but for one certain thing, no enthusiasm but for the object specialising his particular hobby, as Horace remarks in his satires about people who have either the passion for silver pieces or bronze. HUNC CAPIT ARGENTI SPLENDOR STAPED ALBIUS Are. This one the glitter of silver holds. ALBIUS stands dumb before bronze. Seneca informs us that in his time there was an amateur with the hobby of collecting rusty fragments. Another who had gone so crazy over small vases of Corinthian bronze that he spent his days handling the pieces of his collection, taking them down from the shelves, putting them back up again, and continually arranging and rearranging them. De Brevitate Vitae, Chapter 12. Marshall tells us of a man who made a collection of pieces of amber containing fossilized insects and another collector who boasted that he had a fragment of the ship Argo among the rare pieces of his collection There was also Clarinus a debauchee According to Marshall who vaunted himself upon possessing samples of all the goldsmith's art of his time But remarks Marshall this man's silver cannot be pure Another type noted by Marshall makes one realize that there is a species of collector that will never die of Paulus Marshall observes his friends like his paintings and his antiques all for show book 12 chapter 69 Codrus quoted by Juvenal, is the needy collector he keeps his books in an old basket where mice allow themselves the luxury of nibbling the works of divine Greece. He sleeps on a pallet shorter than his little wife. His collection and furniture are all in his bedroom, the only room he has for living and sleeping in, and conspicuous are six cups, a small cantarium on the console, with a figure of Chiron, the centaur, below it. Book three. Eros is another type that of the mournful collector This is the way Marshall describes this not unusual type Eros weeps every time he comes across some fine murrain of jasper or a finely marked table of citrus He sighs and sighs from the bottom of his heart for he is not rich enough to buy all the objects of the sceptre and here Marshall comments how many are like Eros without showing it, and how many banter him for his tears and sighs, and yet in their hearts feel like him. Book 10, Chapter 80 Mamura, another type handed down to us by the inexhaustible Marshal, never misses a day without visiting the sceptre spends hours in gadding about reviews the rows of young slaves which he devours with the eye of a critic not if you please the common ones but the choicest samples those that are not on show to everyone not to common people like us adds marshall when he has had enough of this show he goes to examine the furniture there he discovers some rich tables Orbays, round tables, hidden under some covering. Then he orders that some pieces of ivory furniture he wishes to examine be taken down from the highest spot. Afterwards he passes on to examine a hexaclinon, a couch used in the triclinium, with six places, veneered with tortoise shell, and measures it four times. What a pity it is not big enough to match his citrus table. A minute later he goes to smell a bronze. Does it really smell of the Corinthian alloy? Of course he is ready to criticize even your statues, O Polyclitus. Then those two rock crystals are not pure, some are a trifle nebulous, others are marred by slight imperfections. Ah, he is a murin. He orders about a dozen to be put aside. He goes to handle some old cups as if he would weigh the merit of each one, more especially that of Mentor. He goes to count the emeralds on a golden vase, and the enormous pearls we see dangling together on the ears of our elegant ladies. Afterwards, he goes to look everywhere on every side for real sardinex. His specialty is to collect large and rare pieces of jasper, Finally, about the eleventh hour of the day, Mamura is completely exhausted, he must go home. He buys for an ass, less than three farthings, two bowls, and takes them with him. Book Nine, Chapter 59 Tongilius is the ponderous, important collector. He goes through the places where the antiques are sold, in an oversized palanquin, and with his cortege and train of followers upsets everybody and everything. Juvenal, by whom his character is handed down to us, remarks rather sarcastically, Spondet enim tyrio slataria purpura filo et tamen est ilis hoc utili. Satires, Chapter 7. Licinius is the type of the lunatic lover of arts he has a fine collection is wealthy and can buy the most expensive objects of vertu but he is far from happy his mania is the fear that his rarities may be stolen or become the prey of fire he keeps hordes of slaves watching his precious curios night and day at night says juvenal a cohort of guardians sits up with buckets of water, ready to hand in case of emergencies. The poor man is in continual fear for his statues, his amber figures, his ivory and tortoise-shell veneered furniture. Naturally, in contrast to the foolish type of collector who seems to have kindled the verve of Roman satirists, the true amateur was to be found and most select collections of art were known in Rome. Among these also the city afforded all the types of the true collector, the selfish one who never showed his collection to anyone, and the man who gathered objects of art, chiefly to share the enjoyment of them with others. Some of these latter wished the public to have the benefit of their purchases, and adorned porticoes and public places with their collection according to statius vindex is the real connoisseur who can compete with him remarks the poet in his silvae lib. quartus who possesses so sober an eye he is deeply versed in the technical procedure of all the artists of antiquity and when a work bears no signature he can decide at sight to which master it belongs he will point you out a bronze that has cost the learned Myron many a day's and night's work, the marble to which Praxiteles's untiring chisel has given life, the ivory polished by the hands of Phidias, the bronzes of Polyclitus, which seem to breathe life on coming out of the furnace. He can see the artistic line, the true mark of all authentic Apelles. End of chapter two.